Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 43, Robert Maxwell's Pony. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Order Mount Bellyache when we order Mount Bellyache. Play with my ding-a-ling when we... This intro is over. (laughs) And today, I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 8, Lisa's Pony. Oh, it's a good one. And that first aired on November 7th, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about the media mogul, fraudster and mainstay of 80s controversy, Robert Maxwell, who on November 5th, 1991, just two days before Lisa's pony was first dead, was found floating dead in the sea around the Canary Islands. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We've got a couple of uh, points of order uh, this week, largely around things that we've done that you can uh, you can increase your retrospectacus experience with. Uh, so, Tom, would you like to tell us what you've been up to? Yep. Well, I've recorded an edition of Tim Worthington's very fine podcast, Looks Unfamiliar. Uh, that's something that Gareth has already been on. And the way it works is a guest comes on to tell people about five or six things from the past which they seem to remember and no one else does so hopefully it'll be around roughly when this episode goes out so check out looks unfamiliar for that excellent uh, and for my part i was interviewed by friend of the podcast ben baker for his new book ben baker's fun book for the apocalypse or nearest offer Uh, which is an activity book about all the kind of things you can be doing during the current climate. Um, It's full of uh, quizzes and fun things to do. And he has a little bit of a talk with me about my fool's errand to watch every Simpsons in a row. Uh, And it was uh, it was fun to do and uh, grab a copy. Doesn't have any maps to Barnard Castle in it, does it? Uh, No, no, I think he's missed a trick there. But let's face it, uh, all of us missed that particular trick. Uh, don't forget, perfectly legal to drive to uh, to Durham and then to Barnard's Castle to check your eyesight to see whether you should be driving in the first place. As long as you do it without taking a piss on the way. Exactly, exactly. Drove drove 30 minutes from Durham to Barnard Castle. It passed the first test. I didn't go blind. <laughs> uh, do you know what? The, the Simpsons memes have almost made this situation worth it. Carry on, you crazy memesters. You're uh, you're keeping the home fires burning for us. Yeah, just in case people don't know what we're talking about, there's this government advisor who has the image of an evil genius called Dominic Cummings, and he basically flouted goodness knows how many lockdown rules. And the Tory party, including the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, have come out and said what he did was absolutely fine, which has completely undermined everyone's efforts in fighting coronavirus. So well done there. Absolutely. Looks like Skeletor without the muscles. Uh, If you're ever ever in Durham and you wonder whether you've seen him or not, you probably have. I tell you what Dominic Cummings looks like. He looks like Megamind. Oh, yeah. You've got a good point there, actually. His his skin's kind of that colour as well, which helps. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but anyway, in, enough about the horrible, horrible future. Let's go back to the wonderful, wonderful past, and specifically November 1991. But Gareth, I hear you ask, stop waffling and tell us what was the UK number one at the time that this episode aired. Well, it's another new one. After so long with Brian Adams, two changes in two weeks. It would seem the proper top 10 transit has been achieved at last. So number one this week is Vic Reeves and the Wonder Stuff with Dizzy. Yes, quality. Okay, so there's a lot to unpick here. So song first. Dizzy was originally a hit for Tommy Rowe in 1969, topping the charts in the US, UK and Canada, and with a backing track played by some of the legendary group of LA session musicians known collectively as The Wrecking Crew. Uh, I listened to that version for the first time the other day, and it's pretty much as you'd expect it to sound. The Reeves version has a bit more oomph to it, uh, which was the style at the time. Amongst others, it has been covered by Boney M, Reckless Eric, and... British comedian Jim Moyer in his most famous guise as the Northeast's top light entertainer, Vic Reeves. So at this stage, uh, a comedy, I'm not quite sure what to call it, so I'm going to call it a variety show. Anyway, called um, Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Um, as erstwhile collaborator Bob Mortimer was present on the show, but not yet getting equal billing. Um, so that had been on Channel 4. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that had all finished by the time this came out. And I think their next series proper was a sketch show called The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer. But that was on BBC Two. So they actually changed channels in this sort of uh, this period of flux between the two. And then there was a panel game show called Shooting Stars, which brought them to a wider audience. But by the time all the BBC stuff kicked off, Vic was a genuine number one musician. Uh, how so? Well, he released an album called I Will Cure You in September 1991 which contained a mixture of cover versions and original songs, many of the latter of which had been debuted in earlier forms on Big Night Out. Uh, three singles were released. They were all covers. There was Born Free, there was Dizzy, and there was Abide With Me. Uh, and this one went to number one, and the other two didn't. Uh, and that just leaves The Wonder Stuff, who were an alternative rock band from a scene that I am assured was called Fraggle who would split up at the top of their game in 1994, but have since reformed for tours like absolutely every other band of their generation with a living lead singer. Dizzy was their biggest hit, but they'd had a top 10 single with Size of a Cow, which reached number five earlier in 1991, and would visit those lofty heights again with a number eight for Welcome to the Cheap Seats early in the next year. And that is all of that. So the US viewership was a Nielsen of 13.8, which is equivalent to 12.7 million viewing households. It was ranked 35th for the week, but was the top rated show on Fox. The production number was 8F06, and the credited writers were Al Jean and Mike Reese. As we discussed in episode four, there's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. The chalkboard gag was Bart Bucks are not legal tender. And the couch gag is that Homer lies on the couch and everyone else smothers him. What happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to the far past. We see an unnamed location, which after research, I can conclusively label as Olgevi Gorge, where an ape man with a suspiciously Homer-esque aspect is taking a snooze against Tycho Magnetic Anomaly Zero, as it will be named after its discovery by humanity in 2513. 
sadly missing the accelerated evolution of humanity by the monolith, one of several stations in the solar system by the firstborn, there to watch over life on Earth and Jupiter's moon of Europa long after its creators have outgrown the need for corporeal bodies. Flash forward to the present day, and one Homer Simpson is woken from his work-time nap by a call from Lisa, who didn't want to bother him and had tried ringing numerous people first. Tom, you know what's coming here. <laughs> Who did Lisa try to call before Homer? Uh, Marge, Ned Flanders, Fatty and Selma, and that nice man who caught a snake in their basement. Excellent, yes. Uh, also, Dr. Hibbert and Reverend Lovejoy. Ah, um, Mr. Couple. Anyway, she was ringing them all because she needed a new saxophone read. And the talent contest, as judged by groundskeeper Willie, lunch lady Doris and bleeding gums Murphy, is tonight. So off Homer goes to King Toots, and he's just got enough time. But instead he ducks into Moe's, which is established as being next door, and that's a depiction that will often be used going forward. Not only does he miss the music shop closing, but he then insults the owner, further slowing him down. And Lisa is forced to humiliate herself with a busted reed, although it has to be said that Milhouse's spoon playing and a thoroughly bobbited dingling was still less well received than her efforts. Quite rightly, she is reluctant to forgive Homer, and not even Phineas Q. Butterfat's Mount Bellyache Sunday can slake her thirst for sulking. Later, as he watches home movies, he realises he's never really paid that much attention to Lisa, to the extent that the situation will be hard to retrieve and take a long time to heal. So after a half-assed attempt, it's time for a quick fix, which in this case is buying the titular pony. After an unsuccessful trip to the pet shop, and having got a load of $5,000 through the power plant's employee credit union, Homer actually does the unthinkable and leaves a pony's head in Lisa's bed. Luckily, it's attached to the rest of the pony. Don't worry, he's not planning on eating it. Princess the pony is laden with hidden costs, though, from salt licks to stabling. So whilst Homer has literally purchased Lisa's love and improved her pronunciation, he has to pay the piper, which he does by taking a night shift at the Quickie Mart on top of his work at the power plant. His training is largely in how to pass off expired hot dogs to the only bozo who'll buy them, which is sadly himself, and how to decrease the damage from the inevitable shootings. And his plan involves a mere 11 minutes sleep per day. A fine aspiration, but not the most plausible scenario. And Homer is a terrible worker to boot, so not even Arpu is benefiting. When he falls asleep driving home, Marge feels the need to step in and tell Lisa what her father is doing to afford the pony. And Lisa makes the heartbreaking decision to give up Princess. Homer gives Lisa a piggyback ride out of the Quickie Mart, and Arpu watches them leave. He is forced to admit that though he slept, stole, and was rude to the customers, Homer was the best damned employee he's ever had. I really like this episode. It's got a lot of heart. It's got good gags. It's got the wonderful Slumberland sequence uh, when Homer falls asleep driving home. Um, that's just the icing on the cake, really. I, I, I think this is a real, a real top-tier one. What do you mm. reckon? Yeah, well, there's some really good attention to detail in this one. So so when Lisa's on the phone trying to get Homer to get the read, next to her, there's a little kid who's got um, lots of wine glasses and he's filling them up with water so he can do that thing where you play them by, you know, putting your finger around the rim. There's really good character development in this one and they do a great job illustrating just what a 
bastard Homer is. Because <laughs> it's, um, you know, he's given a really simple task to do. Get a four and a half read. And he can't even remember what instrument Lisa plays. And, of course, he does the whole thing with um, he gets to the store in time, but he thinks he's got time for a beer. Um, and then he's late getting the read for her. Yeah, it, it's it, it's really, really good at building up Homer as not a negligent father, but as someone who doesn't pay enough attention to his kids. I think it's great for that. I would say, yeah, he's he's more he's the right kind of jerk Homer in this one. He's inconsiderate, but goes to great lengths to make up um, for his deficiencies, whereas later seasons particularly the 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 dearth that is seasons 11 through 13 will depict him as just a bastard essentially somebody who knows the right thing to do and deliberately does not achieve it Mm -hmm. yeah because 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 it's very much a character flaw in this one in that he wants to do the right thing but he is overridden by laziness and greed essentially Really, that's the difference between Homer Simpson as a character and Peter Griffin as a character in Family Guy. Um, and I think where they where they start to go wrong with the Homer character in later seasons is to almost try and bring it in line with Family Guy uh, and some of the, the edgier material in South Park as well. That That's not the Simpsons game, really. Um, but we'll get there soon enough. For now, I'm going to hit us with some character debuts from this particular episode. So the obvious one is Princess the Pony. I can't find any details about the voice actor, so I'll naturally assume that this was Frank Welker again. Yeah, it's got to be. Princess is a pony and does pony stuff. Unlike Stampy the Elephant, we won't see much more of Princess, though she will be seen in flashback in Season 9, Episode 3, Lisa Sachs, and is mentioned in Season 11, Episode 13, Saddle Saw Galactica. I think someone just stepped on my grave. We also get Millicent the horse trainer, assumedly the owner of the Grateful Gelding Stables, from whence Homer purchases Princess. The character model is apparently patterned after Catherine Hepburn and is voiced by Tress McNeil. She apparently has one other appearance. In Season 15, Episode 8, Marge versus Singles, Seniors, Childless Couples and Teens and Gays. Now, I only found one source on that, so I haven't been able to corroborate that information. It's also not that good of an episode, so I didn't want to go back and check. But since this is quite a short section this week, the opportunity to read the title of that episode, which, for the avoidance of doubt, is Marge versus Singles, Seniors, Childless Couples and Teens and Gays, twice in a row, has really helped me to pad out this otherwise slight segment. So I'm choosing to believe it, because it benefits me to believe it. And now, did you know... The very start of the episode is based on The Dawn of Man, the opening section in Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey, as written by Arthur C. Clarke. The sea in Martin Prince's ABC of science fiction, mentioned in season two, episode 19, Lisa Substitute. There's also a very obvious Godfather reference, so I'm just blasting through that because it's not really worth mentioning and everybody knows it. The rights to My Diggling as partially sung by a child during the talent contest, were apparently an absolute nightmare to get hold of. With John Boylan, who was the producer of The Simpsons Sing the Blues, said to have personally reached out to the song's most notable performer, amateur videographer Chuck Berry, to secure his blessing. I'm just going to stay on that song for a second to note two things. Number one, 
famous conservative anti-freedom campaigner and all-round pain in the arse Mary Whitehouse tried to get it banned in the UK. And perhaps more surprisingly, when he released it in 1972, it became Chuck Berry's only ever number one on the US Billboard Hot 100. (laughs) That is terrible. For context, no particular place to go reached number 10, Johnny Be Good number 8, and Sweet Little 16 number 2. His only number one was a novelty record, and that's also true for the UK charts. However, said song was probably not even the most expensive song they licensed for this episode, because when Homer is driving home through Slumberland, we hear a version of the song Golden Slumbers from the Beatles' 1969 album Abbey Road. And finally, in awards news, Dan Castellaneta got nominated for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Voiceover Performance for his performance here, and won. But wait a minute, didn't Jackie Mason win that this year? Well, as it turns out, the award was shared between six different voice actors that year, all of whom were nominated for parts of The Simpsons. I'll give the whole list now in case I forget to do them later on. So obviously Dan here and Jackie for Like Father, Like Clown, but also Nancy Cartwright for Bart in Separate Vocations, Julie Kavner for Marge in I Married Marge, Yardley Smith for Lisa in Lisa the Greek, and Marsha Wallace for Edna in Bart the Lover. So there we go. Very few, well, Harry Shearer, possibly the only person who didn't get an award that season, (laughs) which I'm sure still rankles. One of the things that this episode is kind of famous for uh, is the wrong Ralph. There's a bit where Lisa's riding her pony, and there's two kids sat on the fence. One kid says she's certainly tamed that horse. And the other kid, who is, who is definitely Ralph Wiggum, says, yes, but who could tame her in completely the wrong voice. And it's really it's really quite off-pussing, to be honest. It certainly is. The, that character model was used before Ralph Wiggum was a thing. I think it's uh, season four, episode one, Cab Krusty, where he first that that character model is first referred to as Ralph Wiggum. I could be could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, and, and before then, he's not he's not Ralphie. Uh, he doesn't have any of the hallmarks of the character and he has the wrong voice. Um, but I'd forgotten that was in there. So that's a very good spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, do you know the significance of the name of the stable, Grateful Gelding? No, no, that would be news to me. OK, um, a gelding is a castrated male horse. So so, so the idea ah. that they would be grateful is, uh, is uh, quite something. I mean, I can't imagine I'd be grateful. Let's put it that way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay. No, no, that's a a very good spot there. Okay. I think it's time for memeable moments for this episode. So there are lots of classic moments in this episode, but I'm going to go for four memeable ones. So first off, you've got the kid singing My Dingaling, used for whenever anything inappropriate happens, basically. Already talked about Mary Whitehouse trying to get it banned. Um, I would also say the bit where Homer falls asleep at the Quickie Mart and he falls asleep uh, within the sliding doors um, because I've seen some history posting on that where someone has labelled Homer's head as Poland and one door is Nazi Germany and the other door is the Soviet Union. Sort of illustrating what happened at the start of the Second World War. There's also the bit where Lisa is showing Princess for Salt Lick um so someone changed that to someone changed that from good salt lick to good boot lick uh 
uh, basically aiming it at anyone who uh, is prepared to <laughs> willingly accept anything our capitalist overlords tell us. And finally, the closing line from the show, the line that Apu says, he slept, he stole, he was rude to the customers. Still, there goes the best damn employee a convenience store ever had. And obviously, you just use that as a template for anything that is rubbish, but the best example of something rubbish, like a Newcastle United chairman or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's uh, I think that's the most memeable moments we've had so far. Obviously, uh, 22 short films about Springfield will uh, put that to shame at some stage. But uh, Mm. for for now, we have a new champion. So. Right, I think we've done all we can to uh, delay discussing Robert Maxwell, so let's uh, <laughs> let's grasp the nettle. Right, okay, Robert Maxwell. So it's the first time in a while I've done a story about a person rather than a country. Now, as I said in the intro, Robert Maxwell was a mainstay of British culture in the 1980s. He was a media mogul who owned the Daily Mirror, and he had many run-ins with billionaire tyrant Rupert Murdoch, who owned the He also had several legal battles with Private Eye, who dubbed him the Bouncing Check. But as is tradition, let's start at the beginning. Robert Maxwell probably had the hardest upbringing of anyone I've ever talked about on this show. As you almost certainly already know, he wasn't given the name Robert Maxwell at birth. He was born in 1923 in the small town of Slatinska Duli, which was at the time in Czechoslovakia. The region it's in is historically known as Ruthenia. Once again, I apologise for my terrible Eastern European pronunciations, but he was given the name Jan Ludwig Hyman Binyamin Hock. Now, given that he shared names with Krusty the Clown's father and the current Prime Minister of Israel, it should come as no surprise to learn that his family were Jewish. The region he was born in was in the easternmost part of the former Czechoslovakia, in a region that switched countries over the decades. So Czechoslovakia bordered Hungary, and following World War One and the signing of the Treaty of Trianon, Hungary lost a lot of territory, including Transylvania to Romania, Vojvodina to what would become Yugoslavia, and Upper Hungary to Czechoslovakia, including Robert Maxwell's birthplace. So in the build-up to World War II, Hungary aligned themselves with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Under the auspices of uniting all German-speaking peoples, Hitler launched the Anschluss on March 12, 1938, and occupied Austria. After that, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain adopted a policy of appeasement. Hitler wanted to occupy the German-speaking regions of Czechoslovakia, known as the Sudetenland. On the 30th of September 1938, Chamberlain became a signatory of the Munich Agreement, where the UK, France and Italy agreed that the Sudetenland should be ceded to Nazi Germany. Chamberlain flew back to the UK, held up a piece of paper and declared peace in our time, which is one of the most useless gestures in history. The Allies essentially left Czechoslovakia to its fate, and within a few months the country effectively ceased to exist. On November 2nd, 1938, the first Vienna Award was signed, Hungary, Nazi Germany's ally, regained control of the part of Czechoslovakia that it had lost following the First World War, placing Robert Maxwell's hometown in the hands of one of Hitler's allies. By the time the Second World War started in Europe, he had already fled to France to join the Czechoslovak army in exile, even though he was just 16 at the time. After the defeat of France in 1940, Maxwell managed to flee to Britain, adopting the pseudonym Ivan de Maurier after a brand of cigarettes. 
He signed up for the British Army, eventually joining the North Staffordshire Regiment. He would go on to be involved in the D-Day landings, the occupation of Berlin, and he made sergeant. He was singled out for praise, being awarded the Military Cross by Field Marshal Montgomery for storming a German machine gun nest. So, by all accounts, he was a pretty heroic guy during the Second World War. And at the end of the Second World War, a lot of territory changed hands, including Robert Maxwell's hometown. So, it was Hungarian, then it became Slovak, then Hungarian again, and it was finally ceded to Ukraine, well, more specifically, the Ukraine-Soviet Socialist Republic in those days, and it remains a part of Ukraine today. So, towards the end of the war, while serving in France, he met a woman called Elizabeth Maynard, and they would go on to marry. And she became Elizabeth Maxwell. And she's a fascinating person in her own right. And, you know, she studied law at the Sorbonne. And she was an academic, very interesting person. And during the war, the Nazis occupied Hungary. And most of Robert Maxwell's family were taken to Auschwitz, where they were killed in the gas chambers, with only two of his sisters surviving. Elizabeth Maxwell was a Holocaust researcher and discovered that around 300 members of Robert Maxwell's extended family were killed by the Nazis. So, you know, that is one hell of a thing to have to deal with growing up. After the war, Robert Maxwell served with the British Foreign Office in Berlin, heading up the press section. While there, he made various business connections and became the UK and US distributor for the German scientific publication Springer Verlang. In 1948, he naturalised as a British subject, changing his name from Ludwig Hock to Ian Robert Maxwell after a Scottish soldier he met during the war. In 1951, Maxwell bought a controlling share of the minor publisher Butterworth Springer, whose name he changed to the Pergamon Press. And the Pergamon Press were his main company for quite some time. But for a media mogul, Maxwell had surprisingly socialist views. He was a member of the Labour Party... And in 1959, he stood for them in the seat of Buckingham, you know, posh old Buckingham, in the general election. He lost with the Tory Elaine Kellett Bowman having a majority of around 1700. In the 1964 election, he overturned that majority to be elected by just over 1,000 votes. He defended his seat in 1966, increasing his majority to 2,200. He was defeated by the Tories in 1970, tried to win his seat back in the two general elections in 1974, but he didn't contest it again after that but still he was an mp for for a good six years but his controversial nature as a businessman was exposed in 1969 when he attempted to sell the pergamon press to the american businessman saul steinberg steinberg claimed that maxwell said that pergamon had an arm that published encyclopedias that were very profitable and he was forced to drop his profit projections by over 20 percent from two and a half million pounds a year to two million pounds so this led to pergamon shares being suspended on the london stock exchange As a result of this, Maxwell was removed from Pergamon's board by the rest of the shareholders, and Steinberg bought the company. The UK Department of Trade and Industry investigated the deal and concluded in 1971 that Robert Maxwell is not, in our opinion, a person who can be relied on to exercise proper stewardship of a publicly quoted company. However, while the UK government was investigating Maxwell, the US government was investigating Steinberg. They concluded that the DTI treated him unfairly. And Pergamon fared poorly under Steinberg, and Maxwell borrowed funds to buy it back in 1974. In 1980, Maxwell purchased the British Printing and Communication Corporation and immediately slashed the workforce from 13,000 to 7,000, playing his role in the staffing reductions of British print media. It's one of the things that Murdoch did as well. It was just cut, cut, cut. You know, the, the idea was to make everything streamlined, but 
it just made everything much harder for journalists because there weren't enough of them to cover stuff. So at Maxwell's business dealings included buying what was essentially his hometown club of Oxford United in 1982, saving them from bankruptcy. Maxwell's first move as owner was hugely controversial as he tried to also buy Oxford's local rivals Reading, who were struggling financially, and merge them into a new team called the Thames Valley Royals. Needless to say, this was unacceptable to both sets of fans. It would be like West Bromwich Albion merging with Aston Villa, or Norwich City merging with a small club down the road like Ipswich Town. The merger didn't go through because a former Reading player, Roger Smee, spotted an irregularity with a recent share issue and got the takeover stopped with a court order. I just wanted to share a quote from him because it sums up going to lower league football matches. I was such a sad case in those days. I was building a business and my only respite was to go down to Elm Park, have a few whiskeys, watch some terrible football, moan about it and go home having had a thoroughly good afternoon. (laughs) That's uh, just a day at the Hawthorns for me, really. (laughs) Yeah, that was Norwich City from about 1997 to 2005, maybe. (laughs) But yeah, the case of Oxford United, because Oxford United did pretty well under... Maxwell's stewardship they got two promotions in two seasons and and uh, got up to division one which was the top division in those days but it really emphasized how he was a businessman first and didn't really care about people that much because from a business sense Thames Valley Royals made a lot of sense because that's what you do if you've got two companies who are struggling and they're doing the same thing you buy them both, you merge them, you pull their assets. Makes perfect sense. But it doesn't make sense if you're trying to placate football fans, let me tell you that. Robert Maxwell truly shot to the public attention in July 1984 when he purchased the Mirror Group for £113 million. That perpetuated the great 80s media war between himself and Rupert Murdoch, who owned the and the News of the World. Remember that, News of the World? A Sunday red top that shut in 2011 after their journalists hacked into the phone of murdered teenager Millie Dowler and deleted some of her voicemails, making her parents think she was still alive. But what the hacks actually wanted to do was hear more voicemails, so they deleted some of the older ones, which is absolutely sickening. Over the years, Maxwell accrued more and more business interests, including Nimbus Records, the Berlitz Language Schools, and one half of MTV Europe. I remember MTV Europe. I remember being so pleased when we got cable and I was able to watch that. But it just, it wasn't really anything like the American version. And and bizarrely, it didn't bear much resemblance to the, the British charts either. Like you'd, you'd get the, the odds sort of, you'd probably get half an hour of English language acts to half an hour of uh, German and French acts, which which is fine. Obviously, they've got to do that balance, but it was just just a bit jarring, really. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, you go from go from blur to detotenhosen in the, uh, <laughs> the space of a few seconds. Um, still watched hours of it, of course. And that's <laughs> what being a teenager was. Well, well, you got partly got Robert Maxwell to thank for that. Ah. So, so during the eighties, he had many run-ins with the satirical magazine Private Eye, who dubbed him Captain Bob and the Bouncing Check due to his dodgy business practices. Maxwell sued Private Eye for libel and won, with one decision costing the magazine a quarter of a million pounds. In 1986, Maxwell decided to celebrate by launching a one-off publication called Not Private Eye. Ian Hislop and Peter Cook got wind of this and decided to send its production team a crate of whiskey. This got them roundly smashed 
and Hislop and Cook were able to break into the building. While there, Peter Cook called up the Mirror Catering and ordered a crate of champagne, called their press team to come down for, for a photo op, and even managed to call Maxwell in New York before they were chucked out of the building by security. As someone who was nominally left-leaning and in a powerful position, he was well-connected to various Eastern European totalitarian regimes. He published several fawning biographies of them, including Eric Honecker of East Germany, Bulgaria's Todor Zikov, and podcast favourite Nikolai Ceausescu. In fact, the first question that Maxwell himself asked Ceausescu was, Mr. Ceausescu, your campaign seems to have the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why are you so popular? Well, OK, it wasn't that, but it was, Mr. Ceausescu, how do you account for your enormous popularity with the Romanian people? Which is almost as bad. In 1988, he made his biggest acquisition, purchasing the American publisher Macmillan for a staggering $2.6 billion. In the same year, he launched the European, an ambitious continental newspaper. Uh, he also bought a ailing newspaper in New York, too, because he was trying to crack America, basically. And these projects lost him a lot of money. And to try and cover up that fact, he kept moving money between them and changed dates on various documents to make it look like they were profitable. Easily the most egregious thing he did, though, was to fraudulently take nearly £500 million out of the Mirror Pension Fund. But this didn't come to light until after he died. And Robert Maxwell's death is even to this day, kind of a mystery, with no one being able to conclude with 100% certainty what happened. So on November 4th, 1991, Maxwell had a heated telephone argument with his son Kevin over defaulting on £50 million worth of loans from the Bank of England. Now, Maxwell was supposed to go to a meeting about it, but instead he took his super yacht, the Lady Gislaine, on a cruise around the Canary Islands. The next day... November 5th, 1991, two days before Lisa's Pony was first aired, Maxwell's naked body was found floating in the Atlantic Ocean. So what happened? Well, apparently, Robert Maxwell liked to wander around his yacht in the nude, as you do. And he wasn't a very fit man and was apparently struggling with heart and lung conditions. So the most likely explanation is this. He went to the side of his boat to urinate over it. Something he did quite a lot, apparently. He had a heart attack couldn't keep his footing and he fell into the water as as um deaths without dignity go that's kind of up there with elvis yeah pretty much pretty much if that is what happened the spanish launched an inquest into it and they concluded that was what was most likely to have happened and the inquest ruled out both murder and suicide it's one of those things that no one really knows what happened that day it's it's, it's just it's it's sort of the best guess it, 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 it it's a combination of kind of weird things but it, it, it's a bit Occam's razor as well so so you know it's a weird explanation but it's kind of the simplest so anyway uh, both current British Prime Minister John Major and Labour leader Neil Kinnock lined up to say good things about Robert Maxwell after he died Major stated that he was a great character who had given him valuable insights while the 1991 August coup was taking place in the Soviet Union another perennial favorite of mine and Kinnick called him a man with a zest for life who attracted controversy, envy and loyalty in great measure throughout his rumbustuous life. And of course, there was a huge amount of fallout from Robert Maxwell's death. I've already mentioned the Mirror Pension Fund, but him taking nearly half a billion pounds from it left a big hole in the pensions of 30,000 people. And despite it being topped up by investment banks and the government, most pensioners suffered a 50% drop in the value of their pension fund, which is an awful thing to do for people who've worked all their lives for it. 
And given that the financial irregularities of Maxwell's companies were laid bare for all to see, the banks called in their loans and the business empire quickly collapsed. His son, Kevin Maxwell, was declared bankrupt with debts of over £400 million. Kevin and another of his sons, Ian, would go on trial for fraud, but a jury found them not guilty in 1996, concluding that their father was behind it all. Robert Maxwell was afforded a lavish funeral by the State of Israel, with the Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir and President Chaim Herzog in attendance. And I don't want to go too deep into the whole, was Robert Maxwell an Israeli spy thing? Because it involves George Galloway, and it's a hell of a rabbit hole to go down. But, you know, it's all out there if you want to read about it. But having said that, I suppose I should give people a little taster now that I've mentioned it. So... In 1948, Czechoslovakia did something very unusual for a Central European state that was dominated by the Soviets and recovering from World War II. It armed Israel. The weapons they provided helped Israel win the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and it's believed that Robert Maxwell played a role in convincing the Czechoslovak government to do this. Because, you know, he was Czechoslovak himself, he would have had connections. One thing you need to stress when you're talking about Israel and Mossad in particular, the um, security agency is that Israel does not have nuclear weapons. I'll say it again because I need to make it very clear. Israel does not have nuclear weapons. No, sorry, Bob. It's just that if you say that they do, you might find yourself being kidnapped by Mossad agents and imprisoned in Israel for 18 years, as happened to the whistleblower Mordecai Venunu. The allegation was that Venunu went to the mirror with his story, and Maxwell then tipped off Mossad. That's the allegation. So George Galloway raised the issue in Parliament, invoking parliamentary privilege, the concept that today is more famous for raising questions about the sex life of footballer Ryan Giggs. Maxwell totally denied the allegations and went after Galloway. Galloway successfully sued the Mirror Group for libel the next year, that's after Maxwell died, winning substantial damages. However, he did go on record to say that Maxwell was not involved in the abduction. So it's a case of who do you believe, a fat, pompous, lying bastard or a different kind of fat, pompous, lying bastard? (laughs) But before I get into any more controversy, I think I'll leave it there. So that's the life of Robert Maxwell, a crook, a fraudster, but absolutely fascinating nonetheless. Excellent. Now, I I have to report, and I'm I'm sure we will all be one step ahead of me on this one, that Robert Maxwell did not appear in The Simpsons. There wasn't even some kind of parody character called Bobbert Raxwell or anything like that. Um, obviously, Rupert Murdoch's appeared, but he owned The Simpsons at one point, so that's uh, that makes sense. So I'm, I'm going to draw a specious link to something that I can find in The Simpsons. And something that, if you're interested in Robert Maxwell, is really worth looking into. So Robert Maxwell had a software company called Mirrorsoft. Or at least he he was uh, he owned it and was high up in the echelons of it, and they had the rights to Tetris, but so did about six other companies. And there's a fascinating documentary. I think it was one of the BBC Four jobs about um, somebody from Nintendo actually going to Moscow at a stage when you didn't really go to Moscow and turning up unannounced and saying, "Do you realise that everybody is selling your game illegally?" Oh, and by the way, we want to buy the rights to your game <laughs> legally. Uh, it's it, That is a great documentary if you can find it. So all I can say is that we can link to Robert Maxwell by saying that Tetris is featured in season 14, episode 9, The Strong Arms of the Bar, when Homer is trying to get all of his purchases back from Radio Wolf Castle's yard sale. There you go. There you go. And Robert Maxwell at one point tried to buy Sinclair Computers. 
and and if he'd if he'd have succeeded, you know, computing of the eighties could have been very very different. But, but speaking of Tetris, as 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 a chap who does YouTube videos called the Gaming Historian, and he's done like like a proper feature on the history of Tetris, and it, and like you say, it is absolutely fascinating because because of all the you know legal issues and trying to get any sort of dealings with the Soviet Union. It was yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's one hell of a story. And on that bombshell, don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.